Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, June 7th, 2020, we begin our new series titled The Parables. Today's sermon, Authentic Faith, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Enjoy. Today's message is going to be one of those messages that might make people feel a little uncomfortable and want to kind of crawl out with their rear end, so to speak. But I... I assure you that the pastors, when we met and talked about what we're going to do after the Sermon on the Mount and the parables, this was actually set in motion almost a year ago. And so uh, today's parable will be with divine providence that we will be in this particular subject today. Something about parables. Um, just a little bit of history or some facts about them and how to really understand them and dissect them and study from them. Um, know that the word parable itself appears in, in the Canocchial Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, are the Synoptic Gospels uh, 48 times. And in those 48 times, 17 times in Matthew, 13 times in Mark, 18 times in Luke, and zero times in the book of John. It literally means to place alongside. It's two Greek root words, parabolo. And so it literally means to place alongside. It suggests a comparison, or in most cases, a contrast. There is a contrast between two things that are very similar to each other, but oftentimes they're antithetical. They're, they're likened to each other, but they're totally different. Kind of like when we think about uh, Adam and Jesus. Right? When we start to understand that, that Jesus is like Adam, but he's radically different because he is without sin. And we start to understand those roles. Jesus' parables were uh, ingenuously uh, simple word pictures that were for spiritual lessons. It's important to know that in these parables, um, all parables have a gospel illustration. All parables have a gospel illustration. In fact, parables are some sort of form of judgment oftentimes against a hard-hearted individual, a hard heart of unbelief. And in most cases, parables express one dominant theme. Not always in all cases uh, is there only one theme, but in most cases, there is in fact one theme. It's interesting to know that in these word pictures, these kind of elongated similes of some sort of sort, there's always some sort of extended metaphor. But Jesus is speaking these parables. He tells us why in Matthew 13. He says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not see, they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, the parable is written to the believer. It's the believer's heart that is able to take and discern what is being said. If you lived your entire life void of the Holy Spirit, then spiritual things are of utter and complete foolishness to you. But if the Holy Spirit is in you, 
then you're able to reconcile the contrast of what's being presented. When we start to examine the whole counsel of God's word, we encounter Jesus. That's what the parables are. We're hoping that as we go through the parables, you're going to encounter Jesus Christ. That you will see him in a new way. That you will come to see him as the master illustrator. We know without a doubt that only Jesus spoke in parables. None of the other apostles or disciples communicated God's word in parables. So this is unique to Jesus himself, and it's Jesus that we desire to encounter there. Today we'll be in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But let me open us in a quick word of prayer before we jump into God's word. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Lord, how often we are, in fact, as we just sang, prone to wander, to leave the God that we love. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning, that your spirit would fill us with your grace and your mercy, that we would be humbled and become humble servants of you. Lord, that we would glorify you in all that we say and do, that we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers as well. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen. Like I said, today's message is in fact going to have maybe some of us, uh, I know I've walked away from it as I've been in it for a while, oftentimes a little bit uncomfortable uh, because it is very confronting and it is extremely relevant to today and especially with all that's going on in our country and in the world. I've titled this sermon, Authentic Faith because you're going to see that it is authentic faith, authentic faith that compels humanity in life and prayer. The challenge for all of us is always the sufficiency of God's word. You see, the sufficiency of God's word is always a challenge because we hear the word of God but oftentimes are not doers of the word of God. We in fact know God's word. We of course have seen every time John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I think if I ask this room, do you in fact believe that? I think the hands would go up. But oftentimes we're challenged with do we in fact really, truly believe that? We know that Paul told us for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A lot of fear these days about dying. In fact, I'm sure if I took a poll and said, how many people want to go to heaven? Probably every hand would go up. But then if I followed up with how many of you want to die? Oh, no. Jesus himself said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. When you're filled with anger and anxiety, do you in fact go to him and get that rest? Sometimes not. 
We know that God's word says that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But yet sometimes we act in an extremely self-righteous manner. Showing and revealing our hearts as a people who don't in fact trust the very word of God, the promises of God, the sufficiency of God's word. And we in fact find ourselves being puffed up, engaging in opinion arguments. Knowing that Paul said in Romans 14 that opinions lead to quarrels. So look at Luke and we'll look at this word picture that Jesus is creating here of an incredible contrast. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And again, it's Luke 18, 9 through 14. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But in fact, he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. In this makeup today, and I know we have some children with us that are following along on some points, and I'll do my best to call out these points so that in your follow-along package, uh, you're keeping up with what we're talking about. But the four are basically along the lines of their social status. We're gonna talk about their social status. We're gonna talk about their attitude of prayer. We'll even talk a little bit about the content of their prayer. But ultimately, we're going to focus on the final standing that they have before God. You see, when we look at the character attributes of both the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's easy or reasonably to deduce that the Pharisee is approaching things from an extremely self-righteous position. He, in fact, is fault-finding. He's listing off all the things that he's not, and he's thankful for not being that. And he even takes the time, you can picture it, raising his eyes up, maybe open, and pointing at the tax collector uh, over there. His self-righteousness positions him with an attitude of being better than others. Whereas the tax collector enters into the same temple, enters into the same place, with an agreement with God. And he's a fault-owning sinner. He takes responsibility knowing that he's unworthy to be in such a place and appeals to God from a poverty of spirit. He's poor in spirit. If we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. What I'm defining here is what's called a, a, a social construct 
It's an idea that has been created and it has been accepted by the people in society at that particular time or in that particular era. We have plenty of social constructs within our own era today. Many people are out protesting many of these social constructs. They are in fact usually a class distinction or a particular social construct. In the social structure at the time, the biblical time, Israel had no central government. They submitted to the Roman Empire. Family was their typical hierarchy. Social position was based upon your religious tradition. Jesus talked about the rich and the poor, mainly because there was very few people that were not either of those. Landowners, as they called them, were the wealthiest. Military or Roman government officials, and it also included priests and Pharisees, were considered the upper echelons or the upper class. Marketplace workers and art, uh, artisans, etc., were in fact the quote-unquote middle class, a very small, minor group. And then probably the largest group were laborers or field workers. These were considered the lower class. But even below the labor or the field worker was what we would call the socially distanced tax collector. The tax collector was seen as even less than the lower class. He was seen as a traitor. He was seen as a person who was betraying his kinsmen. On behalf of the Roman Empire, he took advantage and took taxes in a way that was unbecoming to their community and their social hierarchy of family. We start to understand the fallen nature of humanity. It's the same fallen nature that is in our humanity today. We start to understand this thing that we call ontological equality. There's your nickel word for the day. And what that means is that we are all created in the image of God equally. God created us male and female, male and female, he created us. We reflect the image of the creator of the universe. And we do so in equality. Social constructs are the very things that oftentimes bring these equalities to new levels. In fact, this is our point one for you kids that are following along. Our point one is that our social status has no advantage. And what I mean by that is there's no advantage in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, we see in James 2, 8 and 9, where he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't sound like the Pharisee's prayer. Thank you for not making me like that tax collector. But you are doing well if you in fact love your neighbor. But in verse nine of this James two passage it says, but if you show partiality, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Can it be any clearer there? If you're showing any form of partiality, you are sinning and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
We, of course, know Galatians 3.28 that says, Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Some of our own social constructs today we can laugh at to a certain extent. We have people in our society, maybe they're the CEO or they're the boss, and they carry themselves in such a way as if they are in fact entitled or not needing to do certain things. We've probably all had that boss who in fact breaks every one of the company rules that all of us are expected to be responsible with. And shamefully, I can say that I was one of these, an elite status traveler. Oh, I had points. <laughs> right? I had points that gave me rights. And in those points that gave me rights, I am ashamed that I can walk to the counter when they're shutting down Chicago's O'Hare Airport and everyone else is looking for floor space to sleep on. I'm the guy that's able to walk to the front of the line, bypass everyone. Yes, your room is ready, Mr. Stevens. Yeah, welcome back to the Hilton. Right? Welcome back. Love those status points. To be honest with you, even the upgrades, right, that you get in airlines, you start to realize once you fly first class, there's no way you're ever going back with the peasants. <laughs> there's no way I'm going to do that. Like, whoa, this is comfortable. They brought me a meal. I didn't even need a meal, but I'll eat it. But probably some of the things, even some of our, our younger people, there's this sacred thing called social media verified accounts. If you see them, their name has a little check mark next to them on social media signifying that they're important and they've been verified that they are who they are. Highly coveted item for our younger generation. But the one that probably is intertwined in this Pharisee and the tax collector is what I would just simply call race privilege. Just like today, there are certain privileges that come with our race. The success of me in business for 30 years, I can honestly say, had nothing to do with my academic credentials. It had nothing to do with what I know. It had everything to do with where I was raised. And it had everything to do with the relationships that I had in the country club that my dad was a member at. My life came with privilege, just like the Pharisee. His life came with privilege because of who he is, because of what he does. When we start to realize that this privilege sometimes makes us stand before people in a self-righteous manner. Luke 18, 9 through 10, when he says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So they're trusting in themselves that they themselves are the ones that are righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Of course, the he in verse 9 there is making reference to Jesus. Jesus also told this parable. We start to understand that he's talking about this self-righteous contempt or a despise. In the Greek, it's only used one other time in the Gospels in Luke 23, 11. But it's referencing how Herod and his men hated and mocked Jesus. It implies within its statement 
the lowest kind of disrespect. So you think of that word or that term or that phrase that you would use in today to consider a person to be the lowest form of life. That's what this word means, contempt. It's to open scorn or ridicule or mockery. There's a name for their own disciples. It's a habarim, which was, a, was what they used. It didn't follow them. It was, it was their people or the land. It was making reference to people as being unclean. In fact, if the Pharisee were to, in the marketplace, just brush up against the tax collector, he himself would be listed as unclean. We see today's self-righteous people. We don't have really a hierarchy like that. Although in some cases, rare cases, maybe we do. I think that the contemporary forms of self-righteousness are more likened to these. And maybe one of these or two of these resonate with you. I can say that at any one given time, all of them have resonated with me. Here's a type of self-righteousness that is a sin before God. Job righteousness. I'm not talking about how hard you work. I'm talking about when you realize that I'm a hard worker and therefore I'm entitled to something more. Family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than those parents who can't control their kids. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. Schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that hates busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Maybe it's mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way that everyone else should. Maybe it's legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Financial righteousness. I manage money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable towards those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. <laughs> and probably a popular one today, political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. It brings us, kids, to our point two. Our attitude of prayer actually matters. Luke 18, 11 and 12 says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, or that Democrat, or that Republican, or that Independent, or that prostitute, or that racist. 
or that whatever. Thank you for not making me like that. After all, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You see, sometimes our physical posture indicates our heart. I know when my children were small, even my grandson, who's not quite two, even has the ability to look at me when I say no about something and go like this. No one had to teach him that. The Sermon on the Mount points to this attitude of the Pharisee. Matthew 6, verse 5, it says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. You see, in two sentences, the Pharisee uses I five times, showing where his focus is. Jews, of course, were required at that time to fast one year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year. And here the Pharisee is bragging that he fasts twice a week. Obviously, he's working on some sort of extra credit program. But you see, it's the attitude, it's the disposition of our heart that separates. Do we realize that in the contrast of life, when we see the beauty of a person who loves Jesus Christ, the metaphors that are used throughout Scripture is talking about light in a dark world. But when we measure from person to person, do you see the backdrop of the darkness of unrighteousness revealing the beauty of Christ in the humility of the heart that loves God? Look at this heart in the tax collector. In verse 13, it says, but the tax collector, but contrast, contrast to the Pharisee, the tax collector standing far off, not at the dead center, not closest to the holy of holies, but in the far off way, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is talking to holy God with an absolute honest humility. Some people in our world these days use disclaimers like, hey, listen, Jeff, man, if you can't handle it, I'm just being honest. No, you're being a jerk. <laughs> right? There's a huge difference from coming and saying to me, hey, you know what, Jeff, you're a pretty fat dude. And or coming to me and saying, hey, Jeff, I love you, brother, and I'm concerned about your health. You think maybe three times a week we could go for a brisk walk for about 20 minutes? Just because we're always together anyways. Maybe that would help with the, you know, kind of the heart. You see, both people just said the exact same thing, but one with humility and kindness differentiates himself from the other. I know that um, my parents, as they got older, uh, my dad, I know that even in my mom, some elderly people think that their age gives them the right to say anything they want. 
That's not true. <laughs> if you're one of those people, stop. Because you don't get to say that. Just because you've made it to whatever age doesn't give you permission to start revealing everything that you know. You see, tax collectors were considered traitors as unclean because of their close association to, with Rome and the Gentiles. You can see that the tax collector stood far off, perhaps in a corner, but certainly not attempting to be noticed. He stayed at the outer edge of the temple grounds because he knew that he didn't deserve to be in the very presence of God. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we're entering into the presence of holy God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? We're not entering into a homeboy relationship with Jesus. We're entering into the very presence of a consuming fire. Where even our good works, as Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, the tax collector understood this. He knew he was a sinner. And he knew that his good did not outweigh his bad, as is by popular belief. In fact, he wouldn't even lift his eyes towards heaven. It demonstrates his sense of shame. The beating of the breast was a sign of sorrow and contrition and humility. Oh, to be contrite. David said in Psalm 51, A broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, thou wilt not despise. You see, there's two polar opposites. There's contrition and there's attrition. Most of us go through life with attrition, which simply means I'm sorry I got caught. Whereas contrition is I'm shattered under the eyes of a holy God, a broken and a contrite heart. We see that the Pharisee has a long-winded prayer of 33 words where the tax collector speaks with only seven. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector is acknowledging his status before God as a sinner and that he is far from being righteous. He demonstrates the proper attitude and reverence of a sinner in the presence of holy and a just God. He seeks God's mercy he, in fact, is saying that he is the sinner. Similar to what Paul does in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, sinners of whom I am the foremost. The tax collector is saying, man, I'm not a sinner. I'm the sinner. The tax collector is consumed with confessing his own sin, not someone else's. Man, I see this all over the internet these days with people lecturing other people on social media, calling them out for their sin rather than just simply stating, you know what, I'm a sinner. And there is no solution for what's going on other than Jesus Christ. 
I'm so saddened when I see people, especially friends and family, elevating the Constitution to being higher than the Word of God. It is the Word of God, it is the person of Jesus Christ that separates us from everything. When I engage in the rhetoric, then there is no difference between me and the rest of the world. That puffed up self-righteousness has to end. We have to approach everything with the beauty of Christ, the love of the gospel, and be that star, that light in a dark world. Or as we preached about weeks and weeks ago, to be a moon. I don't produce any light on my own. I am merely a reflection of the sun, and in this case, the son of God. It is humility that distinguishes the eternal standing between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Kids, our fourth point, our standing before God in verse 14. He says, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to be kingdom focused, to be raised from the dead, to be at the right hand of the God and the Father. Oh man, to be set free from our sin, to live in eternal glory. There is nothing but a small token of time, a vapor that is here on this earth. And brothers and sisters, you need to realize that you're just visiting. It is the kingdom of eternity that is ahead of us, and it's where our focus should be, to the glory of God. This world, this country, if it were to become a communist country next week, does it change your day? No! For eternity is still before you. Maybe the church goes underground. Maybe Zoom becomes the way that we're always doing it to avoid being killed or persecuted so that we can continue to share the gospel. Who cares what's going on in our world for we're not of this world. And we must differentiate ourselves in humility. I tell you, he says, I tell you, the tax collector was now permanently right with God. Now that's a status upgrade. It was the lowly tax collector, not the esteemed Pharisee, who is justified, who's declared not guilty. He did this apart from religious rituals. He did this absent of self-atonement at Yom Kippur. He did this without performing any deed or work of merit. He humbled himself before holy God and said, I'm a sinner. And God set him free. For God, in Romans 3.26, is both the justifier and the one who has faith in Jesus. He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's grace towards the penitent and the humble while simultaneously condemning the self-righteous pride of the haughty gave the Jews one more reason to not like Jesus' message. How could God justify the ungodly? Because Romans 3.26 says that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. 
You see, both the Pharisee and the tax collector are sinners. Sinners under the curse of God. The only difference between them is that the tax collector was approached at God on the basis of God's merciful acts towards sinners. You see, when we encounter God, it is the contrast between his holiness and our sinfulness that will bring you to your knees. We see contrasts in Job 40. It says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? Or in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the culture exalted the Pharisee, but God exalted the tax collector for the proper, humble attitude and faith his prayer expressed. You see, authentic faith compels humility in prayer. Do you believe this? Is the word of God sufficient for you? Or do you feel that you need to express something different than what God's word expresses? When you come to this place and you realize in humility, I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing apart from Christ Jesus. But the hope that I have is I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. We see the character of the Pharisee who had an attitude of attrition He's only just sorry that he gets caught. Or the tax collector in his contrition, self-righteous, fault-finding, better than others, versus agrees with God, fault-owning sinner, poor in spirit, in life and social media. Which one are you? You see, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one that humbles himself will be exalted. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, for your truth. I pray that you would work in our lives in such a way that we would glorify you in humility. That, Lord, your grace is sufficient. The faith you've given us is sufficient. Christ alone is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. And it is your glory and your glory alone that we wish to present to you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. How marvelous, how wonderful. I pray that we would be hearers of God's word and doers, that we would humble ourselves. Our Father, we wish our lives to be all to your glory. May our status in this world be temporary but may we be a bright light unto the world. May our attitude be humility and contrition. May the content of our prayers be your will, wrapped in a request of your mercy. May our standing be Christ alone, our obedience to his word alone, and the gospel, our outward behavior. Father, fill us with your grace. Fill us with your mercy, and may we glorify you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.